became loosened speaker. <clears throat> there are two uh, words in the New Testament that stand tall, and uh, both of those words are in <clears throat> the title of my message this morning. And, um, <clears throat> well... Steve, how do you do this? <clears throat> they are the words, uh, you have them both up there, grace and faith. <clears throat> Amazing grace and daring faith. And um, <clears throat> our text has both of those words in it. The text I've chosen for this morning's message is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. And then Paul adds, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Philip Yancey, in his book, What is So Amazing About Grace, has an illustration where he has uh, encountered a prostitute uh, who is selling her young daughter to men for sex in order to uh, finance her drug addiction. And he asked her, oh, well, have you considered turning to the church for help? And her response was, why would I ever want to go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. Yet in the New Testament, it was the likes of that woman who made their way to Jesus for refuge, not away from him. So it made me wonder, as Yancey draws the conclusion, possibly... Um, Maybe the church has failed. Rather than being and giving the appearance of being a hospital for broken people, what have we done to cause them <clears throat> to be alienated? We have a sterling example in the Old Testament, in the example of Hosea, who went out on the street and found a prostitute and married her. And actually, it's a representative of God's relationship to his people, Israel, because they had prostituted themselves in their worship of the Baals and the Asheroths. And uh, one of the most beautiful, beautiful chapters in the entire Old Testament is the 11th chapter of Hosea, in which it is God speaking through the mouth of Hosea, as God says of his people, how can I let you go? How can I turn you over? My heart recoils within me. But I am God and not man. Which is tantamount to saying <clears throat> most men would not tolerate, they would not put up with this kind of a woman. But God is willing to do that with his bride, his people, Israel, <clears throat> and the church. Years ago, um, 
fellow professor and I team taught a class entitled Marriage and Family. I want to illustrate this uh, concept of grace in the home, in a marriage and family relationship. Because during those years, uh, when I was teaching that class on marriage and family, I read a lot of books on marriage and family. I don't think there was a single book that I read on marriage and family that did not have a chapter in that book set aside for one subject, communication. Why communication? Well, you know, we get the idea that effective communication is saying something loud enough with harsh enough words that the other person has to hear what we're trying to say. And most of us are good at talking because talking is easy, but listening is an act of grace. It is a discipline. It is turning your brain off from all your selfish preoccupations and really tuning in to what that other person is trying to say. Now, I cannot tell you how many times I have worked at teaching young couples this concept. Jan and I have done quite a bit of marriage counseling over the years. As a matter of fact, right now we're working with a couple who just this past week we had to teach them some lessons about communication. And in order to do that, we use several different little tricks, techniques. We use a floor tile and we give one of them the tile to the floor, and you, say, and you have the floor, okay? You have the floor now. She or he's going to listen while you have the floor, so you can talk. Now, in order to really get them to listen, I say, after she is through talking, I want you to tell her what you heard her say before you react to her. And then we have to teach the difference between responding and reacting. A very important difference in communication. It's taken from the field of medicine. When you ask, uh, are you reacting to the medication? If you're reacting to the medication, that's probably not good. Are you responding to the medication? Yes, I am responding. That means it's probably good. Most of the time, we are reacting rather than responding, a very important distinction. And I remember one time, uh, this guy, uh, she drove in the dump truck. I think she had accumulated quite a few years of material, and she took advantage of her five minutes of having a floor time, and she dumped the whole load on him, and I will never forget his reaction. He turned to me and he said, I never knew She felt like that. Well, why didn't he know that? Well, he hadn't been listening. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, most Christians are talking when they should be listening. He who cannot listen long and patiently will presently be talking beside the point and never really be communicating with others, and he won't even realize it. One of the most common complaints over the years of counseling college students that came across my desk was this one. My parents, my parents don't pay any attention to me. Uh, my parents don't have a clue to what I've been going through the last two and three years in high school. Now, 
That's a very common complaint, and I've lived long enough to meet some of those parents, and the parents don't always fit the description that college students describe. You know, sometimes, well, they don't pay any attention to me. Well, who's paying your college tuition? Oh, mom and dad. Well, who's buying the uh, insurance for your car? Oh, mom and dad. They don't pay any attention to you? I think they are paying attention. Um, you're not interpreting their language very well. Well, <clears throat> we have a word for this in the field of psychology. It's the word empathy. I like that word. It's getting inside of the other person's experience and having it for your own. We have a beautiful word in the field of religion, our Christian vocabulary for this very same thing. It's called the incarnation. God with us. Emmanuel was in the birth narrative that Jesus would be referred to as Emmanuel, God with us. God come down to be among us, to walk in our shoes, to experience our experiences, to have them for his own, and to communicate with you and me. When we talk, he listens. Grace is God's action. Faith is ours. We have in the New Testament in... um, Luke 18, or excuse me, Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. And uh, it's a powerful story, one of the most widely known stories in the world. Of uh, Some refer to it not as the prodigal son, but rather the waiting father. The turning point in that story is in that little phrase, he came to himself. He realized what he had become. But that's not my story. I want to tell you my story. My story goes like this. It's the father who leaves home in my story. It is he who makes the long journey down that long road to the far country. It is he who finds me there groveling, hungry for the slop that the pigs were greedily eating. There in the pigsty, it is the father who muddied himself with the disgusting revulsion of my lost state. It is the father who stooped down and picked me up in his arms and carried me home. It was he who made the journey. It was I who surrendered. When God gives, and he does, And when we receive a very costly gift, what is our appropriate response? There's only one. Gratitude. Thanksgiving. Thank you for this wonderful, wonderful gift. Thanksgiving is not something we say. It's not grace at the table. We do that. It's thanks living. It's living a life of thanks for what Almighty God has done in Christ. And then the Apostle Paul says, well, how do we demonstrate our appreciation? By doing good works. It's right there in the text. Well, exactly what does that mean? This last month, I, for many years, have been on the board of Pioneer Bible Translators. Uh, it was a trip back through history for me uh, in this board meeting. 
I remembered um, at the cafeteria table in our, on our college campus, there were about eight of us seated at the table. A guy by the name of Al Hamilton had projected this dream he had of a translation organization. And it seemed to me, I remember, sort of like a pipe dream. It sounded too outrageous and too ambitious. But then I looked around that little table, and I saw three with PhDs in linguistics. And I thought to myself, well, maybe... Maybe God can pull this off with that kind of resource. Then I remember the first missionaries that we sent out from Pioneer Bible Translators. There were, there were four families, four couples that we sent to Papua New Guinea, in south, down in the South Pacific. Hundreds of, hundreds of languages in Papua New Guinea, uh, just four. We learned from um, Greg Pruitt, the president of Pioneer Bible Translators, this last month, um, th- that incidentally was in 1983 at the table in our cafeteria. Now we have 593 teammates on the field. We have we are communicate we are translating the Bible whole or in part to 102 million people, unreached people in the world. We have translated 406,640 verses since 1983. This congregation supports by Pioneer Bible Translators. When you put your coins, your money in the coffers this morning or whenever you do it, you are helping Jill and Norm Weatherhead communicate the gospel in translation you are doing a good work when you do that. That's just one example. <clears throat> How shall we treat the church? You know, not long ago, I, I, had, uh, I was subscribing to Time Magazine. And on the front of the Time Magazine, it was about a new youth generation coming up of youth who were saying, uh, give me Jesus... But you can have your church. What? They didn't know. The church is the body of Jesus Christ. You can't have it that other way. Jesus without his body. I um, have always appreciated that New Testament verse that says, in Luke 4:16 Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom I made it my custom to be in church with the people of God on worship day Jan and I worked very hard to see to it that our children were always in church when the opportunity was afforded and the doors were open. We went to church not because I was an ordained minister, not because I was a professor who taught Bible in a Bible college. We went because we believed that's where Jesus was going to be. 
And I wanted to be there with him. I believe with all my heart, if Jesus Christ were in this neighborhood this morning, he would be here. He said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. He would be here. Imagine for a moment, Jesus just coming through that door. Imagine him coming in and quietly sitting down and, and looking around and seeing people. Oh, there's a family. I remember seeing them almost every day. I encountered them almost every day. Leslie Weatherhead picks up on that verse. Uh, He went to Nazareth where he had been taught or been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went to the synagogue as was his custom. Weatherhead describes that event like this. He went as was his custom into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He could have worshipped much better in the hills. He can scarcely have profited much from the dry and ponderous sermons of some desiccated rabbi, but I sometimes imagine myself there, waiting for the service to begin, spiritually hungry, longing for some message from God, some assurance that man was not left alone. Then Jesus enters. I see his quiet yet radiant face. I note the serenity of his whole bearing. He kneels and then sits, relaxed and happy to be with God's people on God's day. I find myself wishing he were nearer to me. Yet his entry has made all the difference to us. The whole spiritual temperature has risen. A strange sense of quiet joy and well-being seeps into my heart. I become sure of God and sure that I am forgiven, loved, understood, accepted. This uh, month has been World Series month. I don't know whether you watched the World Series or not. I hadn't followed baseball very much this year and and the two teams that were in the World Series, I wasn't particularly interested or excited about either one. But at World Series time, I always get excited about baseball, regardless of who's playing. So I, I watched them through. It was a good series. But as I watched it, I thought years ago of an advertisement during World Series that I would never forget. I want to describe it for you. Uh, <clears throat> It was an ad, advertisement, right in the middle of the World Series, advertising Major League Baseball. The music started in the ad, and it showed little nine-year-old boys coming out of the dugout, donning their baseball helmets and taking their ball bats and knocking the dirt from off their cleats like they'd seen the big leaguers do. It showed one of those little fellas sliding through the dirt and dust, dust flying into his face, reaching out and putting his hand on home plate. Then you heard the announcer say, no balls and no strikes to Fisk. It's a long fly ball into left field if it stays fair. And then you heard, Willie Mays just brought this crowd to its feet. And then you heard, Reggie Jackson just hit his third home run. And then the announcer said, 
they are so small and the game is so hard but they have an incredible secret advantage they have such heroes to inspire them the heroes of October are with us again the game is hard and we are small but we have an incredible secret advantage we have such heroes to inspire us the writer of Hebrews summons it like this he says seeing we are encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses let us lay aside the weights and the sins which doth so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith the alpha and the omega of our faith game is hard <clears throat> that uh, verse describes faith it's the faith section of the book of Hebrews and it follows chapter 11 which is the, called the roll call of the faithful the author has summoned the greats Men and women across the ages who have stood tall in this one attribute seemingly so favored by God, faith. And, and that's what surrounds us. I ask you this morning, have you ever done anything on faith? You know? When you really weren't able to see the outcome, you weren't sure whether or not you could make it. You weren't even sure whether or not you had within yourself the resources to see your way through. But you believed if you, if you trusted God, if you put your hand in his hand, he would see you through. He works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way for me. Have you ever done anything like that on faith? Where you could not scientifically predict the outcome, but you took the risk. That's a little like faith. It uh, was probably a day like any other day. <clears throat> the uh, <clears throat> hiker was traveling along a, a rather dangerous precipice. Um, he w actually looked over the edge and he looked down about a thousand feet straight down to rocks below and knew that if he slipped and fell it meant imminent death but he wanted to make the hike anyway and he did slip and he began to fall and he reached out in desperation and he caught the rim of the canyon <clears throat> and he tried to pull himself up and he couldn't make it and um he looked down and he thought about dying. And then in desperation, he looked up into the heavens and he cried out, Is there anyone up there who can help me? And a voice answered from the heavens and it says, Do you believe? Oh, yes, I, I do believe, but can you help me? Do you have faith? Oh, yes, I have faith, but will you help me? Then the voice said, let go. He thought about that for a second. Then he cried out, is there anybody else up there who can help me? <laughs> Isn't that like us, huh? The call to faith, the call to trust our hand in an unseen hand and 
trust that he would see us through the night. Our proneness is to want to cry out, God, give me an, an easier answer than the call to faith. But faith is not a leap into darkness without any evidence. The, apostle, <clears throat> the writer of Hebrews says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report, but without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them that seek him. And then the author launches a description of these greats, of these men and women who, women who stood tall in the history of Israel, and this attribute favored by God. Listen in, <clears throat> to just part of his summary in Hebrews 11. 32, what shall I say more? I don't have time to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign enemies, Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and floggings while others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. There's not a place on the world Worthy enough for them to stand, they stood above it. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. And one of the first examples the author launches is Noah. Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, prepared the ark for the saving of his house by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Years ago, <clears throat> Dr. Strauss and I were invited by the campus minister at uh, Western Illinois University campus to come over and speak in the student union building. Uh, we were asked to relate our particular teaching discipline to our Christian faith. Well, my field was psychology, so I had to relate psychology to my Christian faith. His field was philosophy, and so he did philosophy. At the end, we threw the thing open for questions, and there was just some university students wandering through the student union building there, and they, I remember one kid standing against a post over uh, to the side, and he had a big physics book under his arm. He'd just come from physics class, and he said, you Christians, you're always talking about your religious experience. He said, I had my religious experience in the cloud chamber in the physics lab watching electron particles. My religion, he said, is my friends. We sacrifice for each other. We love each other. I can't wait to get back up into the dorm room and be with my friends. What have you got, he said, that's any better than that? There was a girl in the back. I learned afterwards she was an atheistic Jewess. She said... You Christians, you're always talking about peace. Peace, peace, you say. The Prince of Peace is coming. You brought no peace between East and West. You brought no healing between blacks and whites. 
Then she got really nasty. She said, most of the time you can't even get along with each other in your own churches. Ouch. Yeah, that stung a little bit. Most of the world, she said, doesn't believe in what you guys are touting here. How do you expect us to accept it? Folks, there's an answer to that young lady. And I want you to have it. And I especially want you young people to have it. This is the takeaway from my sermon this morning. You take this with you. Truth is truth even if nobody believes it. And a lie is still a lie even if the whole world believes it. Truth is independent of how many people like it or vote for it. It doesn't need a show of hands. Truth stands alone. Alexander Campbell, I think, put it well in his little book, The Christian System, when he wrote it in this little couplet. Multitudes are no mark that you will right be found. A few were saved in the ark, though many millions drowned. So answer the gospel call and enter while you may. Christ's flock has long been small, yet none are safe but they. Now, this is not to suggest we can pat ourselves on the back and say, now, thank God, we're the faithful few. We're hanging in there. But all you have to do is look back through God's grand scheme of redemption, and you cannot help but be struck with the fact that there are many, that, that, that there are those few, however few they may have been, who through the darkest hours of human history did not jump ship but held true to the faith. To the faith. One of the most sobering thoughts about that chapter on faith is the more extravagant um, the faith, the more pleasing it seems to be to God. I have a definition of faith. I want to read you my definition. It is a reckless gallantry of soul. It is a valiant way of thinking about life and heroic belief in the best and the highest. It is a stubborn courage that will live through endless disappointment and lifelong delay and not let go. It is an obstinate determination that in the teeth of clenched antagonisms, whether it succeeds or seems to fail, or whether there is much or little to encourage it, or indeed nothing at all, will recklessly and hopefully follow the voice that summons it. It is a loyalty that cannot be broken. One of the most dramatic illustrations of this in the New Testament is the occasion when Jesus says to the Apostle Peter, Peter, you will deny me three times before the cock crows. And uh, Jesus was going through a, a terrible mock of a trial Probably a dozen Jewish laws were broken in the trial of Jesus. Uh, But Peter was there. He was there in the uh, courtyard warming himself at the fire. And one of the girls, a servant girl from the uh, high priest, recognized him and said, Why, uh, you're one of his followers, aren't you? No, he said, I don't even know him. Another said, Why, you have... uh, Uh, the accent of a Galilean. And I think I remember seeing you with his uh, followers. Were you one of his? Uh, No, I never knew him. And again, 
some of the uh, ladies there said, why, I think I remember seeing you with his followers. Aren't you one of his? And the Bible says, Peter swore with an oath and he said, I never knew him. And at that moment, the cock crew. And at that same moment, Luke says, Jesus, already with evidences of mistreatment on his face, turned and looked right into the eyes of Peter there in the courtyard. And the Bible says it broke his heart. He went out, three gospel writers say, he went out and he wept bitterly. He literally sobbed. The sobbing of regret, of remorse, of repentance. And then there's that beautiful scene where the three women are at the tomb of resurrection. The stone is rolled back and there's a man in there in white robes who says to the women, Jesus is not here. He's risen as he said. He's gone on into Galilee, and he's waiting there in Galilee. Now you tell his disciples to go into Galilee, and there they will be with Jesus, and tell Peter. Be sure and tell Peter the master will be waiting for him. You want to know what grace looks like? Take a good look at that. That's what grace looks like. Let's stand together and sing our closing hymn, Amazing Grace.